this Friday. Your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley. It's anger. Let me at him. Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Ugh. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello, I'm Anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going. Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only theaters Friday. Get tickets now. What's going on, Brother Mark? Oh, man, happy belated birthday. Because this recording, I don't know when it'll come out, but is right after your birthday. So Yeah, no worries. Did you, you get know, anything reef-related for your birthday? You know, that's the last thing I get <laughs> for my birthday, right? I get reef-related stuff all the time. You know what I got for my birthday? A lot of peace and quiet and just a lot of happy, healthy tanks. My tanks are doing so good right now. I am experiencing a certain degree of ennui, not to the full level of boredom, but now I just look at the tank. I'm like, yeah, corals look good. Yeah, they look good. They look good. They're growing fast. They're growing <laughs> fast. Probably because I did a lot of work right before I left for a month. So all the little mini adjustments I wanted to do were just squeezed in right before I left. And then I come back and just see the results. Um, but yeah, <laughs> I'm just looking around like, all right, I need some new reef toys to play with. You know, there's so many different tanks and I'm thinking about changing up a couple tanks because so many of them are just kind of locked. There's a couple of them that I could start switching around and the 400 cube is, I wouldn't call it uglies, it's just going through like a small algae phase, just like a really normal bump and, you know, uh, light browns and greens and darkness. Um, I might actually use some phosphate remover for that thing because I haven't done it in so long. Yeah. And um, I just don't have the bandwidth right now to add a, a handful of surgeon fish at the same time. I've been, we, I think we started off with one small abalone and I probably have added like 60 or 70 stomatellas since it's set up. Not at once, you know, just every time I come across them, I'm like, oh, you go over there. And you can see the help, but the tank needs a little bit more assistance as far as like bringing down uh, the nutrients. Yeah, going back to your birthday thing, don't you hate when I, I was gonna say, don't you hate that when um, people go, oh, he likes aquariums, I should get him something aquarium related. Um, when I was younger, you know, because being a fish geek for so long, like you get the coral reef shower curtain and all this stuff, and I always yep. thought Harley Davidson people must be like this, like you know, they're into their motorcycles, and then every Christmas mm -hmm. they get like the Harley Davidson toilet seat covers and the Harley Davidson, like people just buy them all kinds of paraphernalia. But, um, I mean, I've already got an antique aquarium product collection. I've yeah. got a big, uh, enamel pin collection of fish and aquariums. I've got a massive library of books and magazines, plus all the tanks and fish and corals, freshwater and saltwater plants. I'm like, I'm, I'm pretty good. You're pretty sad. But one thing I'm starting to, to really picture in my mind is just having much fewer corals and much bigger corals, right? When I set up the studio, I'm like, I'm going to grab all these different corals. I'm going to have a living library of corals. And, uh, you know, one of the things that I grabbed, I would always grab like the branchy varieties because there's a lot of varieties of those. But like even my yellow is just kind of boring. <laughs> it just sits there. Maybe I'm going to just separate it out from the brown and the gray. Um, but a lot of those delicate varieties can develop really cool colors, really cool uh, bright colored tips and I've got a bunch of them and they just doo-doo brown. I have tried a bunch of stuff shy of putting them into like super high light, but I've seen them diving and they're usually 
not not that deep but not that shallow so good intermediate zones so like 20 to 30 feet Ooh, that reminds me this is a little bit off topic but it's really on brand for me is i've been um like literally manifesting and hoop dreaming that one day the apple watch could do could be like a dive watch oh yeah you it saw the news so today it was so far removed from my actual wish list when I saw the Ultra, the Apple Watch Ultra, so to bring you guys up to speed today, there was an Apple announcement um, about a lot of new products, and the Apple Watch, uh, they released a new version called the Apple Watch Ultra, and uh, so it's like, oh, it's rated to go to 100 meters or something, you know, depth rated to 100 meters, just about 330 feet, and then they started showing off the bands, and then they showed off a band that was like kind of stretchy stretchy they call it ocean band and they were like oh it can even go over wetsuit i'm like why would you want that yeah, over wetsuit i was the same i was diving. like wait why <laughs> the next slide i just lost my mind i was like oh my god that is that's a killer app that's my killer app i've been waiting for for an apple watch i have a decent dive watch that does log gps does connect with my phone but it doesn't really work well right it doesn't connect to gps where i do my dives and so what's really awesome about something like the apple watch ultra is a really good dive watch can cost upwards of two thousand dollars right um a high-end dive watch with uh, a built-in color oled display easily you're in a thousand twelve hundred fifteen hundred dollar territory and so apple just integrated all the dive functions into the watch and so now you can just dive with it right the same watch and obviously it's got a native app it's they just call it the depth app <laughs> i'm like that is so apple just depth just like music weather whatever notes messages um and for coral seekers like myself and 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 vincent chalius having that really uh, granular detail to the dive profile, including GPS coordinates of where it came from, and be able to like link up some photographs to that dive log, have a digital dive log that just is just always there. Oh my goodness, that is just that is a really really killer feature. Um, like like I said, most most dive watches will give you the dive profile, um, you know, of how deep you were at any given time, um, and temperature. Um, but being able to have the GPS coordinate on a particular dive, like I have discovered reefs, right? I've gone to some like bush places and I don't remember exactly where they were, but having the watch take the GPS readings and then going back out into the field and using that to relocate a dive or a particular coral, that's really, really exciting. So that's my little, um, consumer electronics, uh, segue or just, tangent over here i was really excited to see that today uh, it really took me by surprise yeah i watched the whole thing too and uh I, I just maybe less than a year ago bought a new watch i was kind of pissed because i'm a you know i'm i'm really big on backcountry backpacking and paddling trips and i would have to if i took my watch i'd have to charge it every night you know, all the time. That that is the one catch. But this one, charge it, up. it can go sixty hours. They say if you put it in low power mode, or yeah, sixty hours, which is more than a week, right? So uh, no, yeah. I mean, if you're only using it for activity levels uh, when you're active, um, and then I, they actually made the compass useful. I think um, six, sixty hours is under three days. Yeah, sorry, thirty six hours was. Yeah, day and a half. Day and a half, and then six hours. But I'm I'm more thinking about if you're out in the woods, whatever, and you're backpacking. You're not backpacking 24 hours. Yeah, not a day. to mention all the other features that come with an Apple Watch. 
Like I've never, I've always seen it as just an extension of your phone. I know it does a lot of stuff standalone, but most of the time you're not going to need it. Okay, sure, it can play some music like a, like an old uh, iPod Shuffle from 15 years ago. You know, it plays the music, whatever. But between the trail running, the hiking, free diving, regular diving, and functioning as an extension of your phone, uh, I thought I thought that was really good. It's not often that consumer electronics kind of. Um, intersects with some of the stuff that I try to do. So that was really fun. The uh, satellite emergency, basically personal locator beacon feature on the phones was actually really cool too. So, because I always have to bring, uh, oh, you can't see it, but she's on a shelf back there, a little Garmin inReach, you know, mm-hmm. which does a lot more. Like I can send text messages to my wife and stuff. But the main reason I bring it is, you know, if I have a major emergency out Somebody there. Somebody broke their leg or something. Yeah. Yeah. So the, the fact that it's like now in your phone, because um, you, I saw your article on Reef Builders about how they just, you know, they just put uh, a lot of these uh, dive watch manufacturers on notice. And I was thinking the same thing at Garmin. Cause mm-hmm. And Garmin makes dive watches also. That's what I was going to say. Like, that's the niche that the Garmin watches still had the leg up on because it had much better battery life. And then you bring in the phone for the uh, emergency satellite, you know, help I broke my leg stuff. And I was like, ooh, they're, they're cutting into a whole new market. But that's but, not what um, this uh, podcast is about. But yeah. Yeah, I was just about to say, <laughs> let's get back on track. Um, so your tank's doing good. That's what you were pretty much leaving us with last week. Yeah, everything's kind of rocking. The only thing is, um, one of the big things I wanted to do in this smaller tank was uh, collect some uh, goniporas or goniopras, however you want to pronounce it. And they're just finicky little dudes, man. Um, so my amaze balls, the polyps are out but not out you know what i mean like they're just like so the polyp is is out but the tentacles not extended exactly um that's exactly how it started with my amaze balls i mean i think in, i can see it from here it's a little tiny orange speck i'm going on almost two and a half three years it's not dead yeah <laughs> it's not dead but it is discouraging when it's you know i've got ghanis growing like too much all over the place i got alvies growing into like little mounds from a single colony i'm like how why is this one coral struggling well, and I you have know? like three that are just rocking, and then I have exactly. three. They don't all, I mean, the maize balls is obviously very expensive, but then I've got some less expensive ones that are all bunched up but still hanging in. And I'm like, what's the, it's the same tank. It's the same water. The par is pretty even, you know, across the board. I've even moved them a little bit around because I don't want to piss them off further, but. You must have known this was coming, right? Because I've talked about it before fans talked about it before others have talked about it before the maze balls it just goes on strike but then <laughs> i've seen on pictures strike. on social media where it's like encrusting on somebody's frag rack and i'm going what the, the <laughs> like wh- what is that guy doing you know so but it's also I mean, when you have a goal right like when i wanted to do a bubble tip an enemy tank for my lattes and addis clowns and all my bubble tips just shrunk away even though a year prior, my RBTAs were freaking weed in my 180, and now it's like I'm gonna put some, I'm gonna collect some Goni operas, and it's like, no, you're not, you know. <laughs> <laughs> no, that is true. I think uh, unless you're doing like a Euphilia tank, um, you set out with a particular mission, and you get some some hiccups and some challenges along the way. You know, my Montepora tank. Um, suffered we just could not get rid of the nudies we tried resetting it multiple times and now it's like 
still has a lot of monoporos, but it's got a lot of acro. I just, man, that tank is, <laughs> I think after MacDam or after this weekend, I'm going to do like a nice video of this tank because it's just, it's, it's also, also two-sided, two dude. There's like three reefs to look at. It's one side, the other side, plus the end. Yeah. There's a, there's a big blue squamosa in there. You can barely see it, you know, because it's on the bottom of the tank and there's just corals all around it. I'm thinking, okay, I guess it's going to have to pull that blue squamosa out at some point. Um, that'll be weird because it's been in that tank for four years, three and a half, three and a half. Cause I'm going to set that up, uh, early 2019. Um, but yeah, I think that's a great point that you make. Like it is hard to stick to like your reef aquarium goals, but not for will lack of willpower, but all these other challenges that might come up. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if anybody has any, um, flower pot secrets that i'm not thinking of i mean yeah manganese yeah this and that like we've all heard that stuff but uh trust me that's not the issue here i don't know what is though but i know one concept reef tank which is probably going to have no issues uh someone sent me a picture of a reef tank concept that i had thought about doing for a long time i just never got around to it uh somebody set up a stromatolite reef i saw that how crazy is yeah. that? So for those of you that don't know, do you want to tell them what a stromatolite is? I'll let you define it. It's okay. been a while. But so, uh, you're talking um, about the, it was like a shallow frag tank square with the, 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 it looked like little, little mounds, like petrified yeah. wood looking things. Yeah. So stromatolites are the oldest living evidence of life on earth. And they think, God, they are the, I'm trying to think how old they are now. I mean, they're, the oldest evidence of life that we have on earth. And it's basically a, a biofilm of any kind, really. And the biofilm is, you know, like say it's mostly cyanobacteria, bacteria, but it's a lot of other th stuff in there. And they, it lives by the waves. There's only a few places in the world you can find them. I think there's one spot in the Caribbean. West Australia is the place that's normally kind of um, described. So it's like a living, not, I don't know, going calling it a reef is, is a little too far, but these are almost like living boulders made up of mats of biofilm and all the micro sediment and the super fine sand finer than than ulytic sugar fine sand um just gets incorporated into the biofilm matrix and then it just keeps just compounding over time so saying that these things grow is not exactly accurate you know right. they just kind of accumulate about the, at the pace that like a sedimentary rock would it's not you know, bioassimilation, really. It's more just... It is, but it's accidental. Yeah. It's, not, it's not on purpose, right? It, it, just the biofilm over time um, gives the stuff. So I just thought it'd be kind of... You know how this started? It started because we talked about dinoflagellates. Actually, I think it was after a re-therapy session. We talked about dinos. We talked about cyano. And we talked about like... I think one of you or I said on joke, it's like, oh man, if I set up a tank to try to grow dinos, I bet you I couldn't grow any. <laughs> right? Which is back to our point. You set up on a goal and it'd be it's it's you get all these uh curveballs right yeah so if you set up a tank to try to grow cyano you probably wouldn't be able to grow cyano if you set up a tank trying to grow hair algae you definitely would succeed that stuff doesn't care <laughs> i think hair algae would just go go crazy but and so i was like you know what i think we might be able to learn a lot about optimizing cyano growth and dinoflagellate growth by doing a dedicated tank and i think those tricks would reveal what it would take to get rid of them you know yeah. what would be the what would be the limiting factor if you have a tank full of, of dinos full of cyano you would hit up these walls and you'd have to start adding certain things to keep it lush <laughs> I, know, I know there's some people right now just squeaming like like cringing at the thought of a lush like film of dinoflagellates besides that would be stinky but when you hit up a 
when you hit up against the boundaries of anything, then you really learn, right? Perfect example is when you set up a brand new reef tank, everything is fine. There's, you have fresh new seawater, there's all the trace elements you could possibly want, all the minerals you could want, and as your coral density grows and grows faster and there's more biomass, all of a sudden you start having shortages of stuff, you know? And it took, it took us, you know, previous generations to learn, oh, you need to add calcium and raise the alkalinity and keep an eye on pH. And then later on, it was about the trace elements. Okay, now we have need to add trace elements to fill those those gaps. And now we're like, okay, now we also get to a point when the, the tank is fully lush and, and rich with corals. You got to add nitrates. You got to add phosphates. I never thought that, you know, when I set up the studio that we would be testing phosphates and nitrates like almost once a week right? Every other week. And it's always this, I'm, I'm, I'm adding nitrates, I'm adding phosphates, and I'm feeding more than I ever have, mostly to the fish. And it still astounds me, like certain tanks, I'm like, oh, by, by the way, you have zero, you have zero phosphates, you have zero nitrates. Just such a weird world. And so like hitting up against those boundaries is really instructive, which is why I was thinking about the stromatolite tank. Not to mention, you'd be, well, somebody already beat me to it. So <laughs> I, know I wouldn't have the first one. I'm sure there's some researchers who have tried to do it, but I think that'd be really cool if you manage to get a concretion of, I was thinking, you know, take a, like a calcium reactor dust, you know, and you just shake it up and you have all that fine slurry or just any of these pulverized. Well, you could uh, do, um, what is that uh, marine snow stuff? It's basically just, I think, calcium, uh, is it calcium carbonate powder? Any of those, yeah. any of those like calcium carbonate milks yeah. or creams. You know, you add them to the tank over time. I think, you know, you could probably build up a little pebble over after a while. After a while. Yeah, that'd be interesting. But um, I kind of want to revisit something I really failed to mention on the previous session. He was talking about the aquarium in Numea. I don't think I talked about it nearly at all. That was Did a great know? video. I watched it twice. Yeah, I, you watched it twice? Dude, those dude. tanks were impressive. I don't. Know. It's, it's my cup of tea. I mean, you you know you. I have a certain thing I like, and those like grown in. Even though you said that they rebooted them in the mm -hmm. video, I'm sorry. I don't yeah. want to jump the gun on the topic, but no, yeah. no, no, you to totally. They um they rebooted the, um all the tanks. What's crazy is like most small public aquariums, and this place is small. Um, not not as small as you think. I mean, they have under hundred thousand gallon tank, right? So it's not that small, but it's small like on a public aquarium scale. Yeah. They have a back area that's almost twice the size of the front area, right? And that's like super important for supporting your displays. And so, yeah, they just—I think they closed down the aquarium for like a year, maybe maybe longer. And they took things out and they reinforced the tanks, um, rebuilt everything. And uh, with the you know with the way you put everything back, it just doesn't look. Like they've been there only a year, but that's kind of the magic of corals. I think the most impressive coral for me, one, is that this tiny, well, relatively speaking, little aquarium, middle South Pacific has the oldest uh, captive grown aqua uh, aquarium coral, uh, Nicanopora. Like what, New Caledonia, what shouldn't this be in, in France or England, right? They have all the oldest. Yeah, like the Nancy Aquarium or something like that, you know? Yeah, that's where you'd expect <laughs> to kind of see that stuff, yeah. right? They all have the records for the oldest uh, aquarium fish, saltwater fish. And uh, so there's that. But then the Cossonaria columna, you know, that was just like three colonies just stacked front to back, top to bottom. That oh, was really impressive. Um, 
the only thing that they have, the last thing that they haven't upgraded is their lighting, right? If they're using the same metal halides they used, you know, when they started opening up the aquarium, I think literally 20 years ago, so early 2000s. And um, I'm not saying that tanks should go full Windex, but you do see they had, there's like a little bit of overhead. Well, I was there on, 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 on overcast days. So there's like the skylights above it. And I think they're glazed, you know, so it's not like full sun coming straight through. So there's a lot of light coming from the sun when it's sunny. But because they have metal halides, even if you put four almost same bulbs in same fixtures driven by the same ballast, um, you know, over time they get off schedule with each other and they get yeah. replaced at different times. And then so the color was like, there was like definitely little streaks of color that you could see that were not quite the same. A little bit whitish, a little bit yellowish. And um, I'm not saying they should go full Windex, but like you could see as a reefer, you can see the corals and like, oh my God. Like if you they used, you know, modern reef aquarium LED lighting with just more generous blue, those colors would be visible and they would be more developed. You know, yeah. clearly the growth is fine, but they could, you know, crank it up uh, just a little bit more. And I know that's on their roadmap, right? Because power is expensive in the middle of the South Pacific. And so getting new LED lights is definitely on their roadmap. But, uh, but yeah, the real naturalistic approach to all the tanks, dude, you would have loved it there. You would have freaking loved it. Just even just gawking at a 30 inch bubble coral. And they had another like 24 inch bubble coral in virtually no light with their NPS corals. <laughs> I think there was just like a little strip light over that end of the tank. <laughs> it was really crazy. Um, oh, what else was really cool? Uh, the fish collection. The fish collection. All right. So here's in the video, the, I was yeah. Part of the secret sauce. I mean, if you saw the video, um, that is just what I could capture and the highlights. Yeah. Right. But I think some of the secret sauce is obviously being on the ocean, having access to all the animals, but their staff. They have some really aquaristic-minded staff. Um, so one slight little Easter egg for the reefers, they keep a trio of deep water Cyrilabris bathyphilus. So like a deep water um, uh, fairy wrasse that was described about 10 years ago, I want to say. They keep it with their nautilus in a dimly lit tank, 65 degrees. I'm like, dude, there is nowhere else in the world that those fish are enjoying that kind of aquarium conditions, right? We're taking these deep water fish from like 70 below, below 70 degrees, and we're trying to shoehorn them into a tropical tank. They're like, yeah, no problem. We'll just put you in a 65 gallon tank with the Nautilus. The Nautilus will never catch you. They'll never even try. <laughs> that was just craziest thing to see. And um, yeah, just uh, they breed Nautilus. I saw, right? yeah. I love so, their, how each little baby Nautilus had a label, you know, with a permanent marker or something on or maybe it was nail polish, I don't know. But on their little shells, they all had their little code. Yep. It was cute. <laughs> their little racing stripe. Um, yeah, they have like a little display of eggs. They take 11 months to hatch. But before they hatch, they, they have pop out of the, of the egg case, right? So they like, they don't hatch the way we think uh, a fish hatching or a bird hatching, right? They hatch slowly over time. And the hatch date is when they just come out the egg. But as they grow, they just start bursting through the egg case and their shells are already sticking out. So they also had a display of like egg casings and like tiny baby Nautilus. And oh my goodness, that was, that was just really cool to see. And they're one of only two aquariums that breeds Nautilus, not that have ever, but currently. And uh, man, it's just fascinating to see a place really focus on that have that be one of their strengths they bred their own clams 
<laughs> what? <laughs> and so, yeah, it's just super fascinating. The only thing I didn't have on display really was um, Conspix. That's because they rebooted all the tanks, and so they're just, you know, still probably have a lot of things to do and catching up. And I know that's on their roadmap. They'd like to bring in some conspics and probably breed them. And I think what would be super awesome is if they released them, right, and just populated their local reefs um, with a lot more conspics. And maybe even put like a, a limit. There's not that much collection happening there, but just... I don't know. Not, I'm not saying ban the, the harvest of that fish, but just put some measures in place so they at least know what's going on. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. That That's one of those fish, again, now that, you know, is being captive bred and it has a good program. I just hope it grows and expands, right? Um, because it's always like, oh, I can't afford that fish, but maybe in the future. And then it's always the case that in the future you can't get them captive bred anymore. Right. And well, I, think I don't want that to happen with conspix. So I might get in some hot water for saying this, but that never scared me before. But in the early days of marine aquarium fish aquaculture, um, there wasn't one person raising clownfish. There was multiple people raising clownfish. Yeah. And so they were in competition with each other to produce the best clownfish at the fairest price. That sounds like a crazy idea nowadays when the captive fish breeders, they pick their species, then you kind of stick to them, right? So Baliakarich tries not to overlap with Ore, tries not to overlap with Poma Labs and some of the others. And so you end up with just one breeder having the, you know, the monopoly on one fish. And so there's never, I mean, they, they breed decent fish, but there's never any motivation to make the fish better more colorful, faster growing, a larger size, better price. You know, we've definitely uh, had this weird, you know, back in the day, we were trying to convince people to spend a 20% premium, a 10% premium on captive bred fish over their wild counterparts. And now we're being asked to pay three to four times what a wild fish is worth, you know, or is, is, is costing the hobby. And I'm just like, that's, that doesn't lead to better aquaculture, right? So... Yeah, I mean, I get, I get proprietary trade secrets and all of that stuff, but uh, take one of my holy grail fish, Resplendent Angels, you know, all of a sudden there's one guy in Hawaii breeding them who got brood stock somehow. Um, and I remember thinking like, okay, I was naive at this point for thinking this. Now these things are going to stay in the trade, you know, and I had the clownfish as the model in my brain of what was about to happen or freshwater hobby, going, you know, like take the you, freshwater hobby. Like you, you thought it was going to blow the doors off and then all of a sudden it was going to be a $50 Petco fish. <laughs> uh, maybe not a Petco fish, but you know, it's like, okay, now these things are going to be available and it didn't all rest on the shoulders of one man. And then, you know, that guy who, you know, contributed, I think, a lot to um, marine breeding. So, like, a lot of props and credit. I mean, it was amazing what the he was doing. Frank Bench. Yes. Um, and he hybridized. He did some interesting things. But once he moved on in his interests, like, that fish dwindled out. And He's gone. I remember sitting there on Live Aquarium. I remember, I think, a resplendent was only, like, 600 bucks. And thinking, I don't have that kind of cash right now. I, was I don't in, think Live Aquaria ever had a respondent for 600 bucks. From Frank, I think they did. I don't oh, know. Oh, man, that must, that must have been really early days. It was. <laughs> and if, maybe if Kevin Cohn is listening, he can correct me. But um, but I remember thinking, like, I don't have that kind of coin. You know, I was, I was uh, ch 
just married, mortgage, all that fun stuff. But I was like, but you know, they're going to be around now. Like I'll buy them in a few years. It's a, it's a holy grail fish. And then boom, gone, lost my chance. And I just don't want that to happen with conspics. I mean, yes, they're still collected in the wild. They don't have the kind of, uh, you know, resplendents are on an endemic, are endemic to an island that's a military base, right? Uh, so they're kind of hard to get. Um, mm-hmm. But conspics are a little bit different than that. But I don't know. I, you know, I can't afford a $3,000 fish, even though it's one of my all-time favorite fish. But, you know, maybe if breeding continues to go further and they become more available or the brood stocks expand, yeah, maybe I can get one for $800 one day. I don't know, you know, and that would be a lot of coin for me to spend on a fish that could croak on me, so. Or that will at some point. Well, yeah, it's nothing lives forever, right? So, anyway. Um, cool. Well, that was a good preamble to <laughs> reef therapy. Um, you know, I think last week I was still just kind of feeling a little bit of the jet lag uh, left over from having just come back from the other side of the world, but I'm in full form now and I'm kind of, eager to to dive into today's topic let's do it i uh i like this i've been yeah i've been vacillating back and forth on how to frame this conversation because if the framing and the context really uh underscores what you're trying to say about anything and for a while now i've been remarking of how there's a epidemic of reef aquarium products that won't break your tank right and that seems innocuous on the surface, but I th- it leads people to accessorizing their tank in ways that aren't really helpful for the aquarium, right? And I'll give you a, a couple examples. And one of them is, should like hit home to some person listening. But you know, remember back in the day, the uh, old Game Boy, you could uh, kind of tap into the system batteries and add a light. You could add accessory secondary speakers. You could add um, a magnifying glass, you could add enlarged uh, D-pads and buttons, to, and then you just had this monstrosity. But at the end of the day, it didn't do anything more or even slightly better than the Game Boy inside. You know, And I think another example, and we've all seen this on the road, is Jeeps. Jeep cars. <laughs> the, if you're into Jeeps, one big thing about them is accessorizing them customizing them yep you add a rhubarb you add a winch you add you know uh, extra suspension and i mean i'm running out of ideas because i'm not a jeep guy but then you see those kind of cars driving on the road right like a some kind of rescue mission super outback all-terrain vehicle is just a daily driver and i feel like we're seeing that a lot with reef tanks where accessories are being added to the tank and they're not—they're innocuous to the point where they start distracting you from just doing the fundamentals, like what is required for your tank. You know, I love accessorizing as much as the next guy. I finally got myself a PS5, had to carry it all the way back from Sydney, paid sticker price for it. Thanks, uh, Anthony. I—I um, I bought side plates from D Brand, right? That were white and just cut off the stupid pop color look um, before I even had a single game. So I'm right there with you about making something your own. And, um, but you know, the last thing I want to kind of point out before we, we dive into our, our list, our usual list is um, I still remember 
a, a long period of time, like 15 to 20 years, where every sump was the same. Nobody had a light on their sump. No one looked under the sump. It was a, it was a crypt of, of a natural refugium, if you will, where things were just lived down there. And you only poked at your walkie drive pump, your walkie pump drive, when it stopped working or got really, really loud, right? That was just like a, a forgotten zone. I still, you might remember this. Somebody posted a picture early 2000s of a sump that had like that diamond steel pattern thing going around it. And the hoses were like this neat um, kind of vacuum ribbed hoses going everywhere. And I was like, oh my God, it literally looked like a hot rod. I'm like, this is so cool. Why don't we do this more? And now we have gone <laughs> way past that where folks are just accessorizing their sumps, but their reef tank is still just driving the like, you know, paved roads. Yeah. I hope, uh, I hope the analogy is, is hitting home with somebody. So as a former Jeep owner, uh, yes. And I, I didn't go nuts like those guys, uh, but we used to call those guys mall crawlers because they never went off road, but they had the worn winch and the lift. And But if that oh. was, you know, if that accessorizing or made them happy, whatever, but it was the, it just reminds me back in the MTV days, the Pimp My Ride era, and, and then we just decided to pimp everything. Um, and I see it now on Instagram, some of the ads that the algorithms throw at me. Um, to me, the sump thing is like the Yeti cooler, right? It doesn't, Nobody needs a cooler to keep their beer cold for five days for the most part. I mean, not nobody. Most people is what I meant, right? If you're going to the backcountry for a week and you need to keep the meat that you're hunting cold, right, because you're not getting picked up by the float plane for three more days, yeah, a Yeti makes sense, right? But an igloo cooler from Walmart is plenty good for your boat or the beach or and to me, as much as I think some of those sumps with the built-in LED lighting and everything now that makes them glow with colored acrylic is cool, it is just like the Yeti-ification of coolers. I just saw, and it's it's brilliant from the people that are finding these niches to do it, dog crates, right? A crate that you got to put your dog in when you're traveling mm -hmm. or whatever. Some guys are now advertising on my Instagram because instagram's like oh you have a dog um it's like the yeti of dog crates it's a thousand dollar dog crate and it's got like crazy like i, I don't even want to get into it but it's, it's just imagine you know a thousand dollar dog crate and it's like who needs i love my dog but i don't need a thousand dollar dog crate for her to hang out in on occasion when i need her to be in a crate um so I get it. I think we're doing it with absolutely everything. Koozies, beer koozies have gone crazy, right? Like Yetis and this is a brewmate, you know. Look at this fancy one. I got Reef Rock <laughs> Australia, Reef Rocks, uh, Art Reef Rocks. It's got like stitching on the top and the bottom. Like it's heavy duty. I don't know that I'll ever take it anywhere. <laughs> but I think you hit the nail on the head with the Yeti example. The things we're going to get into there is always a use case where that thing makes sense, right? There's always a use case where you want your, your meat or your, your food to, to stay uh, refrigerated for days on end. There's always a use case for, you know, needing a winch on your Jeep. And there's always a use case for some of the things we're going to talk about on your reef tank, but people are doing them mechanically 
and it's more like they're collecting merit badges than actually learning what the badge was supposed to be about. You know, what is, and you know, I place, the reason I push back on some of this is, is kind of twofold. One, the first time I worked at a chain store, you know, we had, I think, weekly meetings and then once a month, just a little bit deeper meeting and they were always pushing the add-on sale, right? Somebody's coming in, they're buying stuff. You always ask them, is that everything you need, right? And you give them just a split second to think about, oh, maybe I need some food, maybe I need some carbon, maybe I need, this is a pet store so then they could buy some dog fruit or whatever. But that add-on sale really adds up to the bottom line for a retailer. And I place a heavy emphasis on products and additives that show obvious improvements to keeping a reef tank, you know? And so I just feel like there's just been way too much add-on selling to reef tanks and people buying certain things as just kind of a feel-good purchase that is distracting them from having an actual nice reef tank. You know, I do talk to people with uh, coral problems, fish problems, algae problems, um, and they'll tell you, do they have just this laundry list of things? You know, I whipped out some of the old magazines from 20 years ago because that's where all the advertising was done, and there was just so few of these questionably useful products. I, I mean, almost everything was very, very usable, and what's funny is in new magazines, there's no advertisements for that. New magazines, it's all like equipment purchases and food. So like investments in, in things, you know, starting up a reef tank and some of the major equipment or the stuff you have to buy all the time, right? And it's really startling to go from a, a, a magazine from 1992 to one from 2002, really because these add-on sale uh, products are made by smaller companies who don't have budgets and they're just, you know, kind of pushing them to their friends and word of mouth and social media. But um, yeah, reef tanks are just like cars. A big basic one will get you from point A to point B. But how, it's just about, all about how many cup holders do you want? How many cup holders do you need? Yeah, I mean, so. it, and it goes down to market share, right? Um, Yeti, if you if your bon if you worked at Yeti and your bonus was tied to you know sales, you want to make sure that your market share or your isn't just the guy that lives in Alaska that's a bush pilot. You want the soccer mom that's got to put a bunch of Capri Suns in a cooler for their son's soccer game to have put a Yeti on cooler. Monday. Yeah, <laughs> put them in on Monday, use them up on Friday. No, she'll put it in 15 minutes before the game, and she'll empty that cooler right after the game. But she has a Yeti, right? <laughs> so <laughs> I, I feel like this this whole conversation also underscores this other discussion about the cost of reef tanks. Yeah, it's gone up. Add up. Well, it hasn't that much. We can do so much more with the gear that we have now. That if you look apples to apples, controller today, aquarium controller today costs as much or more as a controller back then and it does less right but some other products they, they really actually do more um and it but 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 people because this word of mouth and this jeep and accessorizing culture has gripped the reef aquarium community and the hobby um people think they need a dosing pump for their 40 gallon soft coral tank like what yeah, You know, you talked about it recently about your 2001 uh, tank of the month. You know, you had a, a tangle of green slimer and I don't remember what else because you had so much green slimer. And you're like, yeah, I used to test it about once a month. You know, you didn't even have a calcium reactor. Eventually you did get one, but you got the results. 
you know, and I feel like people are playing the game a little bit more than actually winning the game, I guess, of having a nice looking reef tank. Um, and for me, I feel like the biggest offender is biomedia. Biomedia is an easy thing to make you feel good to add to your reef tank. And I have 20 tanks and I have biomedia in my two freshwater tanks and my one saltwater tank. I might have just a little bit of spare biomedia in the corners of some other tanks, but that's usually for use on a new tank, you know? But you see tank people with established reef tanks adding m too much biomedia. That, like, it's not going to make your tank better. They, they, I think they don't really understand the nitrogen cycles. Like, once you've cycled, your bacteria don't need any more help. They've already found a place to grow. <laughs> Yeah. And so, you know, I think eShops is one of those. They've come out with those those biomedias and they're like just packing them in. And it's like a, a non-serviceable semi-mechanical filter at that point, right? Where just crap and crud builds up around it. But they'll, they'll add like a cubic foot of this stuff, which has tens of thousands of square feet of surface area that you would use for like a food production pond <laughs> yeah or like They're, those glass rings is it Cipperax or spirax or what are, uh yeah Cipperax. Cipperax. yeah, yeah. yeah. forever i've seen people put like baskets where they're neatly stacked <laughs> inside the basket and that's I just that stuff's not cheap man um, well it just shows that you don't really understand why you're adding it in the first place yeah you need biomedia but that's what your live rock is for you know unless you have a very heavy fish load very heavy feeding that biomedia is not like we we got rid of the ultimate biomedia filters called a wet try right and so it's like they're trying to squeeze it in but it's that out on sale from the manufacturers all like oh i had a little a little you know it's a really good point i mean i get that some of this media is really big on pushing the denitrification as well right some of this stuff but it just clogs anyway but we literally got rid of the best uh, nitrifying filter ever, which was one that wasn't limited by oxygen in the water, right? A wet dry filter. And, and it, we considered it a bad thing for reef tanks, right? To, to fuel nitrification too much um, and, and not let the natural processes in the live rock happen, uh, which was, you know, more closely mated with nitrification with denitrification, right? So it's a good point. I mean, uh, ponds are great for going nuts on biomedia, right? And it's also about, it's not that the pond doesn't have great surface area for bacteria, but you want to put that bacteria in a supercharged oxygenated zone so that you're, you're essentially supercharging that bacteria with atmospheric oxygen because you have a crap ton of, you know, pooping koi fish in your pond, right? That's a different you're literally story. You're feeding, you know, but fractions of a pound or up to a pound a day to these fish that you want to grow quickly into very large sizes and you know impress your friends of how fast you grew it and that's how that's why you feed so much um so yeah unless you have a very large reef tank with like a ton of fish and even then we have not heard anybody say they have an established reef tanks but they're getting ammonia spikes or nitrite spikes right not that anybody's testing after the cycle is done but they're solving a problem that doesn't exist because it was already solved at the very beginning of their reef tank. But if you add a couple to your tank, no problem. That is, that is no problem. It's not going to hurt your tank, 
But then when you start filling certain chambers chock full, it's going to build up. All right, so think about this. Everybody's chasing pH. What happens when you have a big old huge you know, brick of biomedia filled with bacteria that are breathing all the time? They're going to respire. They're going to breathe. They're going to release CO2. And over a long period of time, having that all that biomedia, uh, you know, encrusted and colonized, that's going to drop your pH. That's that's bio life, right? That's what you were aiming for. But you know, if a sixty-gallon tank with a cubic foot of biomedia, like you, it's you know, just pull out an aquaculture book. I think you need a cubic foot for like a thousand gallons <laughs> of the actual stuff, not the surface area, right? And uh, so, yeah, I don't know. It's one of those well, things that. Take aquabiomics tests, right? Um, I'm sure others have seen this. I know I saw it when I did mine on uh, a mature reef tank. The intermediate bacteria for uh, the nitrogen cycle were mostly absent in my test results, right? Which in their explanation, they're like, well, yeah, we see that fairly common in tanks with high coral density. And it's like, yeah, because those corals are going for that stuff too, right? So... Mm-hmm. Uh, I believe they're, they're out. They're out competing those bacteria that you're trying to foster with biomedia. Right. Right. So in a way, adding biomedia is taking away the raw organics from the corals that now I'm adding on a weekly basis, <laughs> the nitrogen and the phosphorus. But um, oh man, I got I got a longer list to get through, so we have to to move along. All right, let's keep Do going. Any more? So the next category I, I think is misunderstood is some of the biological additives. I don't want to piss off any manufacturers because everybody's trying to get on the bacteria game because you can add it to your tank and it's never going to make it worse. Right. It could. I, <laughs> it could, but I have on a, a regular basis adding a Pridibio or Microbacter clean or Microbacter seven. Um, it's not going to mess up your reef tank. Right, and there's specific use cases when it makes a lot of sense to add those things. You know, you have a bat, you know, tank crash or something just kind of got out of whack. You want to turbocharge things. Um, of course, these manufacturers would love you to just put them on a doser See, and replace it. You know, once a month. I I don't want to get in trouble with some of these companies, but I think some of these heterotrophic bacterial solutions are dangerous in the same way that carbon dosing is dangerous and. I, I had a fun little experiment with this tank, and I know a sample size of one isn't an accurate, but I've preached, brother Mark, preach. I've tinkered with these heterotrophic bacteria solutions, and you brought up these tanks bombing out on zero nitrates and phosphates. I think those bacteria and bottle solutions that have become more prevalent are. Here's my theory. We'll call it a theory because I got no proof. It's all anecdotal. Me, you know, drinking a beer and having thoughts about this, but I've had this thought for a while. Asking myself, like, why are zero nitrates and zero phosphates more common? I think it's heterotrophic bacteria in a bottle is contributing to that. Um, and I don't think I'm the only one that's dosed something like a Microbacter 7 and bottomed out their nitrates and then ended up with dinoflagellates. So, yeah, I was going to, uh, well, Jake runs off to get another beer, I assume. Um I'm going to put it out there that I think they can do harm, right? So, uh, I don't know. I would you know, be careful with those things. I Back to your amazed bottles, Ghani, issue, I periodically will have one out of a lineup 
of other Ghanis, not amazeballs. We already established that that one's a really picky one. Look at one out of a lineup that just suddenly starts to kind of peel on one side and doesn't extend its polyps and I'll put it in the coral hospital tank and give it an antibiotic treatment. It works every time so far, as long as the coral's not like too far gone. And so we just, we just don't understand enough, right? There's a whole field to dedicated to researching, you know, various microbiomes and, you know, what if adding a bunch of these bacteria might be fueling some of these bacterial issues that we just haven't connected the dots, right? And well, I don't, I don't yeah. know enough to just say, oh, yeah, there's a clear link there. But we're messing with the, the microbial diversity of our reef tanks either way. So, so remember when you were talking about, like, if you had to grow cyano, like your life depended on it, or I don't think you put it in those words, but imagine if you had to be, like, somebody was like, you need to grow cyano successfully for and, and keep it alive for a very long time and I was sitting there in my brain thinking what I would do and one of the interesting things that or dichotomies I saw in reef keeping is people bottoming out their phosphates and nitrates with bacterial additives and ending up in dinoflagellate or cyanoville and yet those same bacterial additive companies were advertising their products to combat cyano so that's where that whole um Shoot, was I going to Denver or Maine? I don't know. One of those places where I had a little bit of a cyano and I said, screw it. I'm going to put uh, a bacterial additive on a doser and I'm going to dose it at like one-tenth the recommended dosage and I'm going to go out of town for a week, right? And that's when I totally nuked my tank and I went from cyano to dinoflagellate. So I was sitting there thinking, okay, this sort of proved in my head where – if you asked me to grow cyano, I would carbon dose and I would dose bacteria to a tank, right? That's how I would manifest cyano if my life depended on it. And But I kept reading these recommendations about, oh, well, you know, get some Microbacter 7 or this or that to combat cyano. So I just, for giggles, and I regret it because it was a pain to get my tank back from the brink, I said, okay, let's follow the advice of a manufacturer and do this. And I did it at one-tenth of dosage, so that company could tell me I did it wrong. But my nitrates and phosphates bottomed out. So um, I don't know where I was going with this. I had a point. <laughs> but, mm. um, but, you, you, but we don't know what these things are doing. And, uh, but we are sharing some negative experiences with them. So I'm not saying they're bad. I think plenty of people are having a lot of success with them. I just think you got to be careful with them. That is not a harmless, like, well, it's not going to hurt your tank. You know, you're just going to like drain your wallet a little bit. I think like many other products, these manufacturers should really go the distance to, especially when they introduce a new product that like, you, all right, I don't need you to demonstrate your water flow pump. You know, I don't need you to demonstrate your heater and how well it heats the water. But when something a little bit in less tangible, like bacterial additives, give me a case study every month where you've high, you know, you found a tank that's having specific issues and you did this specific dosage and these were the results. You know, and don't just say, Oh, these these bacteria do this based on the research that so we've cultured them or bought them from someone who cultures them and we put them in a bottle and here you go. You know, because when doing things in a Petri dish versus your aquarium, that is three worlds apart, not even one world apart. Um, but, you know, on similar lines, 
I like to put a heavy emphasis on products that show a noticeable difference in your reef tank. And that's why I've been such a huge proponent of AquaPower. Love you, Julian. And, you know, you can kind of tell when someone's dosing fuel regularly or Reef Energy AB Plus or something, a, kind of a carbohydrate laden mixture, you know, they'll get really shaggy polyps and lots of tissue to their corals. And, I man, on paper, like, I know all the benefits of phytoplankton. I went to school from reading science. Like, I understand plankton. <laughs> but I can't look at a reef tank or a coral and tell you, oh, yeah, man, it looks like you feed this tank a lot of phytoplankton. You know, that, oh, look how beefy that coral is. It looks so much better because you're dosing phytoplankton. And, and if Vincent listened, he, he would probably object. And I feel like if you could grow your own phytoplankton at really high densities, you would see, really see the benefits of phytoplankton that is shown in the literature. But when you're dosing like a half barely greenish bottle of you know phytoplankton to your tank, um, what is it really doing? You know, I think you mentioned it on last episode, last session, when you were talking about dealing with the dinos and stuff, you added some copepods and you thought that was maybe a little bit more of a, uh, a nutrient input than well, actually adding copepods? It's not so much copepods, but phyto. Yeah. Cause phyto is a big recommendation. Okay, yeah, phyto. And, yeah. and I feel like, well, phytos, in my opinion, maybe it's, it's helping because you know, what, what is the biomass of that phytoplankton made out of? Right. And when it breaks down in your tank cause nothing's eating it, what is it doing? Right. Um, I'll take it one step further. Do you think that there's nothing but phyto in that culture? Right. There's a bunch of bacteria growing on the phytoplankton itself in that bottle. So you might be inadvertently adding you know, certain kinds of active bacteria to your tank via the phytoplankton. But it's, it's like, if, you know, if you have a nano tank and you really want to feed it, you want to see the green or rotifers, um, kind of similar idea, but it's just, it's so easy to be a phytoplankton producer and just read up the literature without showing the case studies. I'm not demonizing phytoplankton. That's probably like really low on the totem pole. But when you get into rotifers, you know, it's that you're not even really buying something better for your reef tank. You're, feel, you're buying that feel good of adding something that you think is good to your reef tank. You know, like putting a roof rack on your Jeep, you know, you're like, oh yeah, my Jeep could, I, if I ever wanted to put, you know, a bunch of luggage on top of that, if I picked up a whole extended family at the airport, I could use it. But the rest of the time you just have a big goofy roof rack, you know, screwing up your gas mileage on top of your Jeep. And, um, you know, same thing with rotifers, you know, and I think you and I kind of disagreed about the copepod things because like, oh, I've never added copepod. I've sold copepods. I used to sell copepods at the fish store, you know, I, I would tell people the same story. Oh yeah, they're beneficial for your tank. This and that fish will eat them and they'll be part of the microbiome. Like the tanks that I have worked really hard to keep the, the most biology out of, man, I can suck up anything in any corner of a tank and put it under a scope and it's just filled with copepods, mysis shrimp, amphipods. And you know what I found the other day? Because I actually put it under my scope, I found a bunch of skeleton shrimp. Really? I have no idea where those, and they're you know, really small, and I'm pretty sure that's what they were. They look just like skeleton shrimp, not like the crazy large ones, you know, but they're really small. But I'm like, it wasn't a copepod, it wasn't a amphipod, it wasn't a mysis, and they're there, and they're fine, you know? And so adding copepods to your tank is a feel good thing, but is it, how much are you really helping your reef tank? You know? Yeah. Um, I, I, I get, 
if you could add enough copepods to a small enough aquarium to actually dent the dinos, like, all right, sure, but adding a, basically a dusting of even a thousand copepods to a 50 gallon tank, they're gone, man. They are gone. That is, you know, not that many copepods per volume or for area for your tank. And they're, they're going to reproduce in your tank, or the right species are going to reproduce in your tank. Um, you know, perfect example. No one's ever found tegapods years after adding them to their reef tank. Well, yeah, that's what I was gonna. That was gonna be part of my reply is that some of the copepods that they're breeding are um, yes, they live in tide pools in California, which makes them very resilient to temperature swings. But there's a reason they don't maybe exist in the Caribbean, right, or the Indo-Pacific. Um, and to your point, like I don't. I don't see them, I, I've added those in the past, you know, in years past, and I don't see them sustaining their populations, even in a refugium, which I'm a big fan of. So even if you want to blame it on the fish, I have a whole section of my sump where they could prol proliferate. But then you got pelagic copepods that they're breeding. I, I don't see how those are going to survive long term. Um, that said, I have run adding, in, adding pelagic pokopods to your reef tank is just an, an exercise in not knowing what the hell you're doing. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think the Bimenensis copepods are probably a good addition, um, but I think that is a. I think copepods in general are a hitchhiker that when you buy corals and you buy, um, well, yeah, I guess mostly corals or even snails or anything like that. You add them to your tank; they're they're a very common hitchhiker. I will say that I have experienced in this whole world of dead rock, dead sand, we're not getting rock from Fiji or, you know, we're not doing the whole live rock thing anymore. Um, and that's sort of where you and I disagree sometimes, right, or, or have a different um, approach to things. Um, getting those hitchhikers in quickly, I can see that, you know, if you're going to add a bottle of a non-pelagic copepod that will proliferate, might be a worthy addition. And in this tank down here that had the dino bloom, one thing I noticed compared to like my upstairs tank and tanks of past is, you know, you, you get to like that little patch of algae on the glass that you just can't get to with the scraper. And you, I still... I mean, I, I'm noticing I got to hold my phone a little further away when I read because I'm getting older, but I can still spot those little copepods on the glass, you know? Um, and I, I look for those guys or, or, you know, I'm like... You know, you know the best way to look for copepods? When your lights are off, yeah. take your iPhone, turn on the flashlight and put the flashlight right up against the yeah. edge of your glass. Yep. It'll edge illuminate the whole glass. You will be amazed. Like, I'm sure you've seen a few things scurrying about and running around, but I don't think you realize how many things, besides copepods, like tiny little nondescript critters that are clearly moving and alive, are there. Yeah. You know? And that's the other thing. If you're adding copepods, what's in their gut? What's in their gut that's affecting your tank for better or worse? You know? And... I, I am not anti-phytoplankton. I'm not anti-rotifers. I'm not anti-copepods. I just feel like buying a random bottle of questionable, you know, quality and density from the, the fish store um, and adding it to your tank is you just might as well burn a ten or twenty dollar bill. Now, if you want to talk about setting up a phytoplankton reactor, rotifer reactor, copepod reactor, where that stuff is constantly being added to your tank, I am way, way more on board with that. I would. I wish more people were kind of going down that route um, because I think a 
really constant, regular influx of phyto and these other actual planktons that form the base of the food chain and on a, over a long period of time would have a much better impact on your tank than just grabbing a bottle from you know the no, nutrition I, fridge when you're at the store. I agree with you. And um, I mean, go, that this tank down here, when it was going through all the problems, I did that late night check and... It was a desert on my glass. And I, you know, I had to wonder if that was... Oh, you checked? Yeah, yeah. Whereas my upstairs tank, you know, there's all kinds of little, you know, dots scurrying around the glass. So I did throw copepods in there, whether they helped or not uh, at the density I was adding them. Uh, but, but, so I agree with you on a whole of like, if you're just randomly buying a bottle here and there, what's that going to do? If I was made out of money uh, and I could build a reef tank of my dreams, that would be one thing I would do is have a subscription or something to a trusted company and just add Fido and hell, even add Pelagic Copapos, who gives a crap, right? And just <laughs> add it like every week in, in doses uh, that are minute and just see what would happen. You know, like, would we see a proliferation? God, I think that we should call it, I've said that word like three times, it should be a drinking game, but would we see certain organisms really take off like sponges for sure which i know you're not a fan of but i don't need that dude I, if i feed i try to stop all this stuff the only thing that fuels my 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 sponge my excessive sponge growth is just the silicate in my water yeah i don't my, my sponges need no help <laughs> unless i became like a commercial fun sponge producer um yeah but yeah no i'm really enjoying the the direction of this and um do you have anything more you want to add about like kind of the biological additive side of things? No, I mean, I, I think uh, I, I feel bad because I kind of went harsh on them and I know that people have a lot of success with them, but I, I think those are things are can be dangerous, uh, the back, especially the heterotrophic sludge eating bacteria stuff. It's, uh, yeah, I don't know. Uh, I did my one sample size of one experiment and I was like, mm, yeah, nope, I'm not doing that again. So... I want to just as a caveat, I want to say that's very different from a product like Microbacter Fast Start XLM. Yes. That cycles your tank, yeah. which, I, which I will use on a saltwater fish aquarium or a tank that's going to have a lot of fish. You know, I've used it a couple times, boom, every time it was like five or six days completely cycled. It was really impressive. This is not what we're talking about, right? Yeah. And so um, stuff like that is very different. All right. Let's take a hard left. Let's do it. Um, plumbing plumbing parts you know i see a lot of men very masculine men building out their sumps and doing long video series on building out their sumps and they will use a just excessive amount of unions you know and in your mind you're like well more is better but it's like you're just kind of wasting money you know, unions and ball valves and gate valves and extra valves and extra fittings. And for me, the chief offender is the check valve. Yeah, yeah. I have, I have a, I have never used a check valve on my tanks. I have taken over tanks and taken off the check valve. B, I have never seen a check valve worse work past a couple of weeks. You know, unless you were taking that check valve out every month and acid washing it. You know, that flapper valve inside the check valve. Uh, you know, unless it's completely free of obstruction and biofouling from your reef tank, um, when it flaps back, it is not going to stop the siphon. Bro, do you know, all these things I'm talking about, don't you, don't, 
you, I wish they really, really helped. Of course I would use a check valve, and that way I could put the return wherever I wanted under the tank. I wouldn't have to have it so high up of the tank where it might draw in a little bit of air or splash a little bit more uh, salt creep around, you know. But we figured this stuff out a long time ago by having you know, a little hole in your return line in your overflow uh, that uh, which is much easier to maintain. Just poke it with much a toothpick to every once in a while, get the salt creep off of it, right? Much more accessible, and it's <laughs> physics. It's not gonna mess up on you. Yeah. Like, you know how many times I've heard somebody had a tank crash because of a check valve? How did picture it, this? Picture this. I'm about to explain. Right. I see the I see the look on your face. <laughs> um, power goes off. Check valve didn't work. So they had their return line, you know, two, three inches under the water because they were relying on their check valve. Power shut up, but shuts off. There's biofouling on the check valve. I mean, we were talking about the smallest, tiny speck of a feather duster or encrusting micro thing, keeping it from actually sealing, right? So that water drains out of the tank, overflows of the aquarium, overflows out the sump, right? Floods the sump, out of the sump. Power comes back on, runs the tank, ATO fills up the difference. Uh, so I have heard of people losing their tank or most of it because they added a check valve I've because they used a mechanical device instead of, you know, more steampunk stuff that this hobby was really founded on. I've seen guys add check valves, even though their sump is big enough, just so that they don't from a convenience factor, like during a power outage or during like, hey, I like to turn my return pump off while I'm feeding corals. It does, they don't have to deal with that sump water level change as much. That's okay. You know, I, I think that's fine. And that avoids you getting, like you're not relying on the check valve to keep your sump from overflowing, right? Right. But to your point, unless you're maintaining it, eventually that thing is gonna leak water backwards because of a little feather duster or some some calcareous something right back at you if you have the experience to know that you just want to shut off your return pump and it's going to backflow slowly or not um if you're at that level everything we're talking about it's got a use case yeah it has a use case we're talking about the the new proud owner of a jeep who just goes down the list of the catalog and i'll take all it says i'll just take one of each yeah it's you know, it's I'll, I'll um the guy who has the check valve because he, you know, doesn't want to wait five minutes for his skimmer to turn on because there's a water level difference in his sump or whatever. That's the guy with the Yeti that's like in the Alaska bush, right? Not the soccer mom at the soccer game or soccer dad, I guess I should right. say. But um, yeah, it's it's you know the market share thing. It's like there's there's a there's a niche of people that need that. Or want that for a certain reason, but if you have experience and you've used it before and you know its limitation of anything we're talking about, by all means, boo boo, go out and do it. Do yeah. it. You know, I'm I'm not hating on you, but if you buy a Vivid Creative Aquatics random flow generator for your 800 gallon tank, like what the hell are you doing? <laughs> You know, they don't make an inch and a half random flow generator. Again, there's a time and a place for the random flow generator to come out. But like I've seen some people with like a thousand gallon tanks and they have a closed loop or return. If you have that return split into two or random flow generators, 
that's probably pretty good. You, you know, I don't know how much pressure you're pushing through it, but you're probably going to experience the benefits of the random flow generation with enough time to just kind of build up some momentum from the jet coming out. And or if you have a really small tank and use a very tiny random flow generator, that is the perfect use case for that thing. But when I see, you know, a commercial outfit, Chris Meckley, with a 12 or 15 foot long reef tank or, you know, coral holding tank and you have these random flow generators that are, you know, 15 of them that are split up between one closed loop pump. Like, what is that doing? It's just like having a squirt gun in your tank, you know? And so there's, there's, there is very much a precise use case scenario where the random flow generator really helps. Before the RFG, we had the Penductor, right? Adductors came on the scene. Richard Harker introduced them. You know, you punch a bunch of water and pressure through them, like I have on my 400, and you just get this multiplication of water flow. Right? And then this company came out with a Penductor, which is a really short, small, bastardized version that just gave you more back pressure and just cut down on the water flow you know, volume coming through and just get delivered almost nothing in terms of flow acceleration. And that's what they were called, the flow accelerators, you know? And people just buy them mechanically because the guy at the fish store is like, oh yeah, this is your tank. It's going to give you random flow. Is it really, <laughs> you know, is it really? You fine tune it to the pump that you're using whether it's an adductor or penductor or random flow generator or flow accelerator, um, you're going to have a good time. If you don't, you're probably making your flow actually worse. Right? And, you know, it's a good time to mention my, my clover, clover nozzles. nozzles that you can build those yourself to the size of your pump and usually get a much better flow output. I don't put them on every tank. I don't put them on every nozzle. You know, you don't have to. I used one of my LPS tank for a little while, and it was cool at first before. It had, like, big fleshy LPS in the bottom. Yeah. And then over time, I noticed, I was like, oh, you know what? That's actually a little bit too much flow for these guys. And I don't have one on the return of my peninsulas, um, but I do have them. I have the clover nozzles on the closed loops of the uh, coral tables. That's where they really, really shine at accelerating the water flow. Um, but that is that is kind of right up there with biomedia as far as like just being an impulse buy that you think is going to make things better, but until you dig deeper. And that's what reef therapy is all about. Just peeling back a few layers to really understand what it is we're trying to accomplish and how we're getting there. Flow is one of those things that's just not as cut and dry of like, oh yeah, just snap this thing on to whatever your, your outlet is and you'll have quote unquote better flow. I've never used one ever. Um, but then I also don't rely on my return pump to provide a lot of flow in my tank in the first place. Cause I, I'm, that's the other thing. Sorry. No, I'm, sorry. Yeah. I'm really, I'm really eager this session because <laughs> I'm really awake and I um, feel like I'm hogging the airtime a little bit. No, you're but good. That's the other thing. Having a big freaking trumpet inside your tank, your, your, the flow within your aquarium, unless you really have a closed loop or a hyper, high pressure return pump, the flow should be coming from your power heads. It should be coming from your Neros, your gyres, your vortex, your Tunzi streams, etc. Yeah, give me give me two to three X turnover in my sump, you know? Like and then at that point, why would I attach anything to the return? Yeah, exactly. And uh, I always said a four X turnover per hour is a hundred X, ninety six X turnover per day. 100, you know, 200 versus 100 times turnover per day. I can't convince me unless you have a very, you know, critical application like high density fish, 
um, aquaculture or food fish production, you can't convince me that 200 is better than 100 times per day. Yep. You must have one in mind because I have my list and I'm just like burning through it because I'm getting my therapy on. So I'm going to let you gab a little bit. Uh, your list is... There must be some product when you see somebody's tank, you're just like, why do you have that on there? Hmm. Give me a minute. Uh, okay, well, you, while, you, while you take a minute, I'm going to hate on light diffusers. All right. The light diffuser for the Gen 4 Radeon was the ultimate add-on sale. It was $50 that you could add to every already you know $800 Radeon. And unless you were really gung-ho for aiming for that T5 look, the real true T5 look, it probably was worsening just the overall intensity of your reef tank. Then they went to Gen 5 with broader optics, and then they went to Gen 6 with broader optics. So if you're adding a diffuser to your Gen 6 Radeon that has built-in magnets now, I don't think you really understand that the Gen 6 already has like edge-to-edge -edge lighting, edge-to-edge -edge LED panel, you know, and it's already got a 120 or 110 degree beam angle. You know, when you add that diffuser, you're, okay, you're blending the color a little tiny bit more, but there's already a microsurface texture on the lenses that the secondary lens cluster that's put over the LEDs to provide some of that. I do, I do see some people use them um, to make it less of a strain on your eyes, right? It's, um, but that's, I mean, I, that's not really the original intent, I guess. But I, I have seen people use them to kind of back it up. All right, I got, I got one that will be uh, not controversial, but uh, I guess I'm. I don't think a lot of people will share my opinion on. Um, I think calcium reactors are overprescribed. Um, I think that is a Yeti cooler in itself. It's there's there are people who need a calcium reactor, you know, SPS diehards that have high coral density. Sure, right where you start to like say, all right, dosing doesn't make sense in this particular situation, but you see a calcium reactor on a crap ton of tanks that don't i don't think need a calcium reactor and then when they start to argue that it's cheaper or that it's less maintenance uh than a dosing pump uh oh it's set and forget i disagree with all of those assessments right you're putting a cylinder of pressurized co2 in your house you've got this pressurized cylinder of calcium reactor media then they overcomplicate it by using like a peristaltic dosing pump to dose it instead of like a needle hey, valve. Watch, watch yourself. So now you're now you are maintaining a dosing pump already. Um, things still do clog, and uh, then you've got the CO2 that you know CO2 um, regulators suck at telling you when it's about to go. Um, I feel like dosing pumps and AB solution is probably the solution for the majority of your day-to-day -day reef tanks, right? 90%? Yeah. And I'm not saying yeah. they're not popular, but yeah. there's just this whole thing of like, I got to have a calcium reactor. It's just similar to how you feel about um, some of the other things, right? It's like, it's overprescribed. Um, I think that word that you just introduced to this session over prescribed is really adequate for describing a lot of this stuff 
biomedia is overprescribed, biological additives are overprescribed, and anyone who says that a calcium reactor and set it and forget it has never used calcium reactor. You know, when things are running, it feels like a whole system, right? But you do have your CO2 tank plus a regulator, plus a solenoid, plus whatever you're using to control the solenoid, be it a float valve or a pH probe, and then the controller, which needs calibration. And the moment you install your calcium reactor, um, your effluent concentration starts going down. The moment you start dissolving some of that effluent, you're going to have less and less and less over time. You know, so that's one thing I noticed with my Daltec Twin Tech, which is about the most automatic as it gets because it doesn't have a pH probe or controller. But, you know, once I get about 25% down of the media, I find myself needing to turn up the effluent a lot more. You know, and there's very much a, 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 uh, drawback to using calcium reactor as far as yes. like adding CO2 to your tank. I was going to go there. Get, yeah. <laughs> if I could get away with you know, replenishing the minerals in my tank without a calcium reactor, I, I, in the effects of a calcium reactor, I would totally do it. You know, calcium reactors make the more and more sense the more stony corals you have and the larger reef tank you have. Yeah, have you, you are a good example of a, someone where a calcium reactor makes sense, just the scale of your operation, right? But um, isn't it funny how many people are using CO2 scrubbers and then they have calcium reactors installed? And I, I don't know. I, I still don't get the cheaper argument because there are A and B solutions that are really concentrated. And I, I kind of did the math on I have a 180-gallon reef tank with stony corals uh, with two large clams, and I spend $300 a year on two-part solution, Right. I would gather that, yeah, maybe a calcium reactor is cheaper than that, but then you go out and you buy a $600 mushroom and you want to talk to me about how your calcium reactor is saving you money over a two-part solution, and then you go spy, buy an acanthophilia. Like, it, the, the argument doesn't make sense to me in the world of reef keeping. And, and yeah, the dumping the CO2 in, yes, you might be getting some trace elements, but you're also dumping phosphates and other crap in as well. I don't know. I, I have one. I have a geo reactor that I've had for 15 years with an Eheim pump. It still kicks ass. It still works, but it's been sitting on a shelf since 2018. And I'm not looking back in um, any nostalgia for it. You know, I'm glad I'm on a two part system. When you go on any reef keeping forum, any Facebook group, and then filter on how many people asking questions about problems with their calcium reactors and weird issues versus the guy with the dosing pumps who maybe asked 10 questions in the beginning, dialing it in, and then you don't hear from that guy ever again. So, yeah, off my soapbox. You know what's box. funny? That's, that's a really good, really awesome example because it's not one that I had thought of uh, being overprescribed, but I have two peninsula tanks just chock full of SPS. I mean, I have more corals in one of those tanks than most people have in three tanks. And I'm dosing a freaking storm, man. We are, I mean, I'm going through about, let's just say, a liter total per week of magnesium, calcium, and, and buffer every single week. Those, in the, it, I, don't, I don't buy the cheaper argument, but for me doing just a calcium reactor, um, it, I wouldn't have to, you know, refill those chambers once a month. You know, I could get by a lot longer. But along those same lines, I'm like looking at buying, uh, you know, a 50 pound CO2 tank or a 100 pound CO2 tank, and you know, taking those lines to to the calcium reactor. 
it, it's it will be a little bit more coasty, but then my pH would definitely drop, <laughs> definitely drop. But it's like everything else. Yeah, you can probably put together a calcium reactor for four hundred dollars, five hundred dollars, but then you're getting a, a shitty regulator that doesn't really indicate how much is left in the tank. Uh, a solenoid, which is guaranteed to you know, stick on or off um, after about a year or two of use. Don't get me started on the pH probe and the controller. Oh and man, when the they settings when they let the, the Trident control it, like. <laughs> I love my Apex gear, but I'm like, that's that's a bold move, Cotton. You know, let's mm-hmm. let's see how that works out for you. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I think the calcium reactor and the way you frame that, I feel like they just kind of squashed everything else. I, I wanted to say it's the over prescription of stuff, right? You know. So I'm just going to hit a couple others, like automatic water tester. We we did fine. Just periodically testing the levels we don't we're not creating science we're not doing science you don't need an automatic water tester you know if there was a like a um just a full fail proof foolproof fail safe alkalinity monitor for let's just say 500 which i feel is just one or two years away somebody's gonna figure out how to just really make that work um that would be a good one but magnesium and calcium and all these other stuff you're 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 distracting yourself from the fundamentals of reef keeping. Just add some buffer with your hand. <laughs> just just put it in the tank, you know, like keep a regular dose. And then just you know, once in a while, just, you know, test your tank, dose a little buffer. And then over time, you'll just know how much it needs extra. You know, you don't always have to fiddle with your, your dosing system. Um, um, you guys all know how I feel about refugiums. Uh, you can't look at a reef tank. And I'm not talking about algae scrubbers. I'm talking about actual classical definition of refugium. Every space in your tank is a refugium. Yep. Um, CO2 scrubbers, overprescribed, right? There's a use case scenario for that. But I have tanks that peak at 8.1 and go down to 7.7. And by looking at the stony coral growth, you couldn't tell. You could never tell. You know, so when you're going on the forums and bragging about hitting a pH 8.5, but you don't have pictures of your reef tank or this crazy fast growth that you're all of a sudden getting, um, what's the point? You know, you're hitting a number on on your your screen. Um, our RO units yeah. with seven, eight, fifteen freaking chambers, we got by with a regular three stage RO forever and ever and ever. Yeah. I don't think there's really. I don't think I'd go ever above a five states, right? Mechanical, maybe two carbons, just as you have a backup. Um, then your RO membrane, if you absolutely have to, DI. But it's just, again, you guys know I use barely filtered you know, tap water and just makes no sense to strip everything out just to <laughs> put everything back in and then send your water results to ICP to find out more of what you need to put back in. Um, media reactors. Media reactors, we have water Those are flowing such in the a sump. pain, man. I don't know why people use them. They're a pain to clean. Uh, I keep waiting for, I mean, there's some guys have created some ingenious ones that are easier to maintain, but usually there's a drawback to them, right? Like there was one that looked really easy to clean, but it tumbles your carbon. I'm like, I don't want carbon mm-hmm. fines in my tank. Um, the Nios one comes to mind. Innovator Marine had one that come to mind where, you know, you could just pull off the whole yeah. assembly, just, just the reactor part and then service it. But I'm like, we already have flowing water. You know, I guess I could psycho circle back to the hot rod sumps. Yeah. It is, they add 
like probe holders and line holders and like an extra brace and brim and these other like bells and whistles, you know, just jeepify the sump to charge you a lot more and to get your attention, make you feel like it's a better thing. But man, if you had a built-in like heater holder, line holder, probe holders, then you're not flexible anymore. You will get so much more value and flexibility out of buying a basic sump the size of the tank that you need and then adding those things separately because they'll be magnetically mounted and you can put them wherever you want. Yeah. That makes so much more sense to me, you know, but like a sump with 15 freaking partitions and baffles, like I don't think people realize the baffles were there to get rid of the micro bubbles that most protein skimmers don't produce anymore. Right. And we, <laughs> and we moved away from Durso overflows, right? So we're all doing a continuous siphon overflow. Even the Red Sea and the water box tanks are designed to do continuous siphon. So you, as long as you dial in your overflow, you're not getting micro bubbles from the overflow anymore either. Um, exactly. I like medium reactors, media reactors for times when you need to hot rod your carbon and get the most effectiveness out of it because you got some toxin in the tank, right? But if I'm just- I have media reactors on standby. I keep them full yeah. of carbon and or, G or aluminum oxide. But right? the, that's exactly it. Yeah, but the rest of the time, like knocking down a little yellow or tannins or something, like just throwing a bag in the sump is, is actually nice, right? It's like a kind of a mellow approach to knocking those things back versus- just stripping the tank and now your corals are in shock because your your par values just jumped from you know mm -hmm. um I, I yeah I, i'm with you on that it's just give give me a meteor actor when i need it you know like uh shoot i had a magnet leaching all kinds of weird crap or you know something like that but the rest of the time just throw a bag of carbon in your something call it a day and or two things one you want to build it be a hot rod sump just give me a media reactor chamber where if I want to, I can just put the basket in through the flow of yes. water. And None of them do that I, anymore. <laughs> but that's what we used to do. There was yeah. always just a little chamber. You put your bag in there and you're good. And you can have multiple bags and you can pull them out and clean all at once, you know, once or twice a year. And, uh, you know, for one of my main sumps, the 600-gallon system has got a lot of stuff, you know, uh, living in the tank and so periodically I like to use a little bit of carbon I just have a specimen cup hanging over one of the baffles I drilled out you know some holes in the bottom throw a bag on it I, I don't call that a hack I call that like a, a, a downgrade in some ways you know Cade their sumps have those little baskets in the flow of water one thing I'd do different just have the water kind of uplifting but like get rid of the media reactor standalone except for that emergency situation that you discussed because that's exactly what we do here at the studio um God, I don't know, two, three, four times a year, I have media reactor and I'll run it on this tank for, you know, a few days to a week. And then I'll run it on this tank for a few days to a week because the carbon's not used up, you know, and then I'll just kind of bounce it around for a month and everybody gets a nice recent polish. And I'm like, okay, put it, you know, empty it out, put media back in and just have it on, on standby when it's required. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, media reactors again, <laughs> Over prescribed. I think that's maybe the better title of this session. You know, the reef aquarium products and devices that are over prescribed for people's reef tank because everything has a use case. Um, but one of them is that is that doesn't is the automatic top off. 
I will die <laughs> on that hill, bro. I will die on that hill unless you have a nano tank or you have some extraneous circumstances that keep you from having a a you know container or vessel of water above your tank to use gravity float valve, which never really broke, by the way. You, it's just one of those easy add-on sales. You know what's funny just, is I think float valves got negative press because back in the day, we all used calc, and calc would clog those mofos up so bad. We ran calc through them. Right. That was the problem. Right. With those calc separately, as long as you're not running anything through the calc, they didn't get a bad rap. Well, I, is, I think that that perpetuated beyond the era of us adding calc to our top-offs because now everyone who does want to dose calc does it separately, right, with a dosing mm -hmm. pump or a Nielsen reactor or whatever. Well, I think they call them calc reactors now. But, um, but yeah, I mean, you remove that from the equation and those salt creep, yeah, maybe. But, I mean, you're, you're, you run RO water through it. So, like, salt creep kind of takes care of itself for the most part, right? Um, so I, I just think that, like, back in the calc days – we all well, was, said float well, we valves sucked because they did eventually bind up with calcium carbonate buildup. But then, you know, it's that, that generational amnesia where we're like, yeah, float valves are bad. And it's like, well, not really if you're no, no, just not pumping even RO conversation. Yeah. You know, a, a retail store does not give you that option. They don't say you can buy this gravity float valve for twelve ninety nine, let's just call it twenty with inflation, and all you have to do is buy a fifteen dollar, you know, skinny trash can from Walmart, lift it up a little bit, string it over, you're done. Just remember, you know, keep that topped off. Or the store can sell you a one hundred, one hundred and fifty, two hundred dollar setup. My, my my issue with the ATOs is they're solving a problem with electronics and lots of like feedback. That is just, I don't, I'm, I have like 12 float valves at the studio. It never occurs to me that anything will ever go wrong. Once a year at most, I just take them and I flip them back and forth, just make sure they're actuating properly and walk away. You know, but if the fish store is, is in a position where they can offer you a $20 float valve or a $100 ATO kit, what are they going to pick? Right, they're making a few bucks on float valve. They're making fifty to a hundred dollars on the ATO kit. And my thing that the thing that kills me about the ATOs is first we had one level sensor. Yeah. Right, <laughs> I know where this is going already. <laughs> then they gave you another level sensor and charged you more for the high water level sensor, just in case you don't another fail safe. Then they added a gravity float valve, just a regular float valve from where the water's coming in. That will be a mechanical backstop to whether if your first sensor and your second sensor failed. Mechanical, optical, doesn't matter. Then they'll add the mechanical as the final, you know, bo uh, bouncer. It's the final boss the in, in the Bruce right. Lee movie. <laughs> Start with the final <laughs> boss. Start with gravity. Yeah. You know, it, bro, if, if I saw any real tangible benefits of using an ATO devices with a power supply, controller, one or two float valve, plus the feed pump, dude, I'd be all over it. I have one. I have one at the studio. I put it on the nano tank, and now we top off the nano tank reservoir three times a year. I, I need That's one, but in a way, my reef is sort of like a nano all-in-one, right, where your your reservoir is below it. And so that's that's 
Like you're like an all-in-one nano where all the filtration's in the back and your auto top-off reservoirs in the stand. That's where you got to fight gravity, right? And you don't have to. You probably put something on a bookshelf, but you know, from as for There's the sake of aesthetics, I. But yeah, my tank. Uh, I have thirty gallons of RO water in the basement, directly below my tank, and I got to pump it up. So. I use There's a always a use case yeah, where it makes exactly. absolute freaking sense. When I see somebody, you know, build out a hot rod sump with extra unions and a check valve, and you know, all you know, all this other stuff, and they but, put a perfectly good reservoir next to their sumps, and all they had to do was just elevate it five inches. So they did all the stuff for the sump. And just making it hot, Roddy, and jeeped it out, but they couldn't elevate their reservoir five, six inches. You know, a lot of times they'll have a separate room or closet or back area. Well, there's plenty of room to just elevate it. But here's and here's my beef. They'll drop it down, and they'll put an ATO with like six points of failure. So here, I don't understand that. Here's my okay, here's my beef about the ATOs in the market. Where you talk about, you know, there is a valid use case for them. A lot of them use proprietary pumps. And those pumps, in my use case, they can't pump 20 freaking feet, right? So they build this whole ATO contraption. But you, like, I mean, there are exceptions to this rule. But for a while there, every ATO had, like, its exclusive little pump. And the pump was designed to pump water Six, 24 inches yeah 24 <laughs> inches away and i'm like no i mean you know what about the people where it's in their garage where it's in their basement and even on the dosing pump spectrum i mean there aren't a lot of really good dosing pumps to solve that purpose the refiller pumps you remember those things they were like rebranded oh, yes. re um, the original automatic water change system yeah um uh, Chemtech, I think they were rebranded uh, pulse feeder pumps, but I had one of those in the basement for a long time because I there were just no good options to pump to to, to trickle water, you know, twenty feet up. I, I didn't need a, a an external Iwaki, right? I needed something to pump a little bit of water up. Um, now I use uh, Spectre Pure's dosing pump, which works, has a really strong pull and works great. But, um, and like a 20 year, 25 plus year track record of pushing. Yeah. You know, and they're serviceable, as, which I really like. Yeah. Go ahead. For as long as I've been shitting on ATO devices, you know, I never, everything I was railing against, just like, yeah, they use a really crummy, tiny little pump. You buy, you know, a solar water fountain on Amazon for 10 bucks. What do you think it costs to make that little sonar panel plus the pump? Yeah. Less than a dollar? That is the kind of pump that's being included. I don't want to say across the board. You know, Toonzy does a better job. Ellis does a better job. I don't know who else makes a, a better ATO device. But, yeah, they include this tiny little just hyper generic um, micro pump that's actually DC 12 volt. And then it's, they're not really replaceable. Now that you mention it, I haven't really thought about you know, replacement pumps for ATOs, but that's one more thing to add to the list of me hating on ATO device auto top-off systems. I, I mean, those little uh, bilgy pumps uh, are pretty reliable, like what Tunzi uses, but uh, I don't trust an impeller-based pump to be my ATO. On, off, on, off, on, off. Like, think about back in the day, we used to do that with Maxi Jets, and they were crap for, as an ATO pump because they would bind up after a while. And 
And, you know, they don't like being turned off and on an awful lot, right? That's why those Red Sea <laughs> wave makers were so brutal on those, on those pumps. Mm, give it to me. Just hate on the ATOs more. I haven't even thought about that. I had enough to hate on ATOs no, already. It, I, and I know there's yeah. like a legion of reefers right now who are getting salty of us, you know, just crapping over what the, the majority of people use for automatic top off. But take a look at it and see if it makes sense. If you have a nano tank, boom done end of story but then like you said you know what are you getting for that hundred dollars to 150 dollar price tag go go to your uh, neighborhood swimming pool and see how they dose chlorine right it's it's uh essentially an auto top off setup but they're dosing chemicals of course it's usually like a pulse feeder chemtech pump right which was a diaphragm pump it's foolproof it's bomb proof uh, nothing reacts with the chemicals. So if you want to dose cockwasser, like it, like a pulse feeder, doesn't give a crap what you put through it, right? And then you go look at like these auto top off getups and little pumps they give you, and it just pisses me off, man. I mean, um, <laughs> think about all the people that would like to dose calc. I I think dosing calc via your evap is a very bad idea, but it ain't. It ain't an original idea. It's been around for a long time, right? And so it doesn't have to be calc, you know. Like we haven't done this yet, but I want to start just adding a tiny bit of buffer to the top off of my one nano, um, because you know it's always constantly low. And I'm like, you know, a little tiny bit of top off is, or, or calc. I'm oh, sorry, buffer in the makeup water is going to do nothing but help. But that's another great point, right? These really crummy pumps are not suited to. They're barely suited to pump water. Yeah, You're definitely not designed to turn on and off. <laughs> no, it's, it's crap. Okay, I think we can crown this awesome session of brief therapy with one more victim of overprescription. All right. Can, can you guess which one it's going to be? Yeah, I can guess. Controllers. The CO2 scrubbers. Oh, I was going to say controllers. <laughs> well, I feel like maybe we should do a whole session on, on controllers. Sure. Like there's enough a, a, interest that we could just dive in all about controllers. Yeah, yeah we did that one session talking about uh, all the different control uh, uh, methods, reefkeeping methods. I think that'd be a good one to revisit with the controllers because people know how we feel about those. And that's got enough meat on the bone to, to just dive into it all the way. And maybe we'll fold in the automatic water testers there too. But CO2 scrubbers, we, we grew amazing reef tanks with non-recirculating air, without air from outside, full-on stony corals, and we didn't have CO2 scrubbers. Then romantically, you know, this this company from Japan that has recirculating CO2 scrubber that automatically opens up a third valve to allow the precise amount of humidity in so that you get the most CO2 absorption from your media. That's magic, dude. I love that stuff. I don't want to use it. <laughs> I love the idea that someone is putting that much thought so far upstream, right? Not the tank itself, not the pH, not the skimmer, not the CO2 scrubber, not the recirculating scrubber, but one step further of how do we get the most out of the CO2 media to make it last as long as possible. But it's, I think it's just, it falls really, like, vendors are not going to tell you you don't need a CO2 scrubber. They're going to be like, oh, you want a CO2 scrubber? I will order you one. You know what? You know what, brother? You know what, buddy? I'll give you a break. On the media reactor, we got this brand new recirculating model from Reef Octopus. I'll give you a huge break on it, and you're gonna come back every month, and you're gonna refill that media. You know, twenty dollars a month. 
that's $240, $250 a year for that store on one customer refilling their, their bio, their um, CO2 absorbing media. Just one, one, one customer, right? So no one who sells this stuff is going to tell you you don't need a CO2 scrubber. They'll happily sell it to you. And I love the romantic idea of going so far up the you know the pipeline, up the flow diagram, and be like, oh man, we just got this crazy third valve to get ideal humidity because um, it doesn't work if it's too wet or it's too dry as an ideal spot for CO2 absorption. Um, on paper, it works, but man, unless you're really struggling to get your pH above eight. Not 8.1, 8. You shouldn't even really consider it. It's just another thing. And, you know, I think you've talked about this on Reef Therapy before, about things that you had started then forgot about, and then your tank was fine. <laughs> you know, these things that we start doing, and we're like, oh, yeah, it's, it's helping the tank. And then months later, you're like, well, it wasn't doing that much. And I firmly feel CO2 scrubber is in that camp. Um, <laughs> Richard Ross and I, we had a conversation at a show like six months ago where he was just like, just drill a hole in your house. And I'm like, yes, just drill a hole in your house. Just run that airline outside and call it a day. You don't need to get super natural pH levels. You know, the ocean is struggling to keep it at 8.2. I think the natural pH of the ocean now with all acidification, I think the official number is 8.1. You know, so if you're hitting 8.2 8 or 8.3 at the peak of the middle of the day, you're good, man. You're, you're golden. And I, I just feel like unless you're really a commercial producer or trying to break some land speed coral growing record, uh, the CO2 scrubber is just one of those things you're just burning money on. Overprescribed. Over that's, that's, the, that's the title of this, this session of Reef Therapy. I, you know, I, I, I listened to Chris Meckley. Uh, do I don't know who he was being interviewed by because I I forget how much crap I watch, but um, he he did sort of start to allude about uh, in particular goniopora's, so that you know raised my eyebrow like oh hey I'm kind of struggling with a couple um, that for him it wasn't just about growth but also uh, a reduction in coral ailments or diseases once that pH was higher once he started doing the whole calc dosing and all that. And I found that interesting, um, but at the same rate, I'm not a coral farmer, right? And I, in the last episode, I talked about how I, you know, it cost me a small fortune to do it, but I got all my windows re finally replaced on my 30, 40-year-old house, uh, 30 years old. I'm bad at math on the fly, but... Um, and I did notice a uh, slightly higher CO2. I did notice a slight depression in my pH. And then I did an experiment and I cracked open a window and then I taped it with some painter's tape just to allow the airline tubing, not the airline tubing, like the three-eighths inch tubing, uh, silicone it's, tubing. It's quarter inch, but you know, you're bad at math. Wherever. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I, I hooked it up to my skimmer and then I watched uh, my calibrated pH probe do its thing and I watched the pH in the tank and then I thought, okay, I got, I got a little bit of a bump in pH, right? And then I thought, well, what if I ran a bigger skimmer, right? What if I upsized my skimmer because I'm not a big skimmer kind of guy? Um, and, and so then my brain starts to go down the rabbit hole, like, oh, I'm going to drill a hole in my house. Then I'm going to put a, I'm going to go out and buy a thousand dollar skimmer that has 1,200 liters per hour air instead of 600. 
But then that skimmer is going to shut down a lot quicker because it's going to need a lot more organic buildup to build up foam. And I'm sitting there going, and then I just sit there and my brain does this in the middle of the week, right? I start to overcalculate and overthink and overthink and overthink. And then it's Friday and I'm sitting on my back porch and I'm having a beer and I'm like, wait a minute, what am I trying to solve here? Am I just trying to solve what I see in my apex or am I trying to solve a problem I see in my tank? And the, Boom. and the tank's great. The clams have beautiful white new growth rims and, and my Jason Fox flame acro is growing great and life is good. And I'm like, hold up. Like I was about to go buy a $1,000 skimmer and drill a hole in my house, but is it necessary uh, for me to enjoy this hobby? Like is it, is it an absolute necessity for me to do this or is this just me being a tweaker? like wanting to tweak things and hot rod and, and I, I haven't done any of it. You know, I shut the window and life <laughs> moved on and, you know, my CO2 meter says that that room has 992 parts per million in the middle of the day, but. That's a lot. It is a lot. Yeah. But life goes on. No, I can't think of a better like real life scenario to yeah. encapsulate what we've been trying to get across, right? We're, we want to tweak, you know, I started this session talking about a little bit of ennui with my tanks that don't have any problems or issues or nothing to make better. I'm like, Oh, I need to find something else to do. And no, I think that really encapsulated, you know, um, the over prescription of certain aquarium products, but I, come, having worked at the retail side, I really feel like it's just, you know, that add on sale that no vendor is going to tell you you don't need phytoplankton. You don't really need phytoplankton. You don't really need X, Y, and Z. And uh, CO2 scrubbers right in that camp. I'll have to follow up with with Chris Meckley a little bit more about the um, potential um, health benefits for the you know, general reef life by having that higher pH, which is funny because it's something I can totally link up to with my freshwater planted tank when I'm making more acidic. Mm -hmm. Right. So, uh, you know, just as an offshoot, I had black beard algae grown pretty, you know, strongly in my discus and zero pleco tank. And I switched over to just giving them RO water for their water changes and just brought the hardness down, brought the pH down. And there's still some black beard, but it's not like trying to create carpets like it was, you know, and any freshwater aquarium hobbyist will tell you, you know, if you have algae issues, you want to acidify it because it's better for the plants and it's better for the ecosystem. And I could totally see the opposite being true for a reef tank um, as far as, you know, making your tank more alkaline to reduce the CO2, reduce the growth of unwanted stuff, maybe increase the health. But, yeah, that's actually a, a new crack in the, um, kind of the whole pH saga I'd be interested to look at because I hadn't really thought so much of um, – pH in terms of improving coral health or reef aquarium health. Um, clearly coral growth and maybe reducing some algaes, but I'm going to have to follow up on that one a little bit. But yeah, there's there's no reason to pH to chase pH, but the way you said it, you were just like, am I, am I trying to fix something I see on my apex or something I see in my tank? And that is the overarching point that we're trying to get across. People are trying to um, fix problems on paper not problems in your actual reef tank with a lot of things that were discussed. Dude, I am, I'm, I'm very proud of how this episode turned out. I feel like it really is a great companion session to the one we talked about people overdoing stuff. Cause this is right <laughs> up that alley, right? This is like overdoing it part two. Yeah. This was... If you haven't listened to that, 
make sure to go back and listen to it because I feel like it really crystallizes almost every challenge in the reef aquarium hobby. I don't say this every session, but if you're listening to us on podcasts, make sure to rate us in your favorite podcatcher. If you're on uh, YouTube, um, leave some comments down below of some things you think are prescribed or whether you disagree with some of the comments that we made about certain things that you might love <laughs> on your podcast. Yeah, I, I, I think because because you it wouldn't be a counter argument there you you get my full agreement pointing out certain use cases where these things make absolute sense and i'd love to hear other examples of those you know um yeah no absolutely the one you brought up about the calcium reactor is one i hadn't really thought about um yeah you know if i'm annoyed that people are putting a multi-channel doser and automatic water tester on their 50-gallon soft coral tank, <laughs> a tank full of zoanthids and shrooms that could be dosed like three or four times a year, right? Uh, the, you know, the idea of people using a calcium reactor when I'm over here growing two tanks worth of corals in one tank using just a doser, um, it does, you know, kind of shatter the proposition of like, oh, a calcium reactor is cheaper. Calcium yeah. reactor is cheaper if you buy an expensive one and you have a much larger tank. Yeah, and money is a silly argument if you're if if I'm at your house and five minutes later you point out a six hundred dollar coral, right? <laughs> so absolutely. Uh, if you're on a budget and you're trying to justify the long term cost of the calcium reactor, sure. But this ain't a cheap hobby, right? So. I hope that there's someone here who has a limited budget who has been struggling with the high prices of reef tanks and who has listened to this session yeah. um, and has just crossed off all the things they thought they needed for their reef tank. And we're left with, you know, a return pump, power heads, lights, heater, skimmer, and sump. You know, yes. if you're one of those people, man, let us know in the comments down below on YouTube. Mark, this was a fantastic session of uh, reef therapy. I was hoping to have a little bit more charisma in the last one. I'm still just kind of, you know, getting out over the jet lag, but I think we more than made up for it this time. And I think we're gonna have a lot to talk about next week um, following the uh, conference this weekend. So uh, thanks for another great session. Thanks to everybody for tuning in and we'll catch you guys next time. Catch you next time.